My name is Linda Scott, and I teach some classes at the business school with names like culture and global markets, interpretation of markets, luxury and necessity, and the women's economy. My research, however, is mostly about market-based approaches to poverty alleviation in developing countries, especially with regard to women. And I'm going to try to draw in a fairly glossed way uh, on all of that uh, for this talk today. Um, as I um, approached the, the, the challenge of uh, talking to this group about this particular topic, uh, I realized that the point of departure for the uh, World Heritage effort is all about um, military conquest and what happens to um, precious cultural objects either being uh, destroyed or removed under those circumstances. But it did seem to me that in most of the everyday discourse that we hear about the dangers to cultural heritage at this point in time, uh, it's mostly focused on the effect of globalization, as a, uh, the effects of commerce as opposed to the effects of conflict. And so I was wondering whether or not, for instance, that issues such as illustrated here, uh, this picture I took in Dhaka, uh, the uh, sort of the juxtaposition of the uh, burqa and the Coca-Cola truck, these seem to me to be sort of the touch points of our time. This picture was taken uh, in Jaipur. This picture was taken in Kuala Lumpur. This picture was taken in a shopping mall in a Muslim country. You notice not only the kids with their texting, but the uh, Christmas tree that is set up. Okay, So it's this kind of a thing. This also was taken in rural Bangladesh that I think concerns most people these days about um, the uh, integrity of cultural heritage. And so I, I thought it would be surprising if this were not at some point part of the agenda uh, for the cultural heritage um, questions for uh, UNESCO and, and, and perhaps for Oxford. So I went online um, just to take a very casual look, I must say, just quite just a stroll uh, through um, what was on the website and, this, and sort of surrounding text that had been offered about it. And what I found was that um, UNESCO had basically um, have, has a whole series of legally binding conventions, and I put that in scare quotes only because I really don't know what it means, uh, starting with copyright and goods stolen uh, in armed conflict. Uh, but it's been expanding um, several conventions along the way, mostly in the last 15 years or so, uh, to address a range of objects for control. Uh, not only sites but, and, and tangible objects, but intangibles like stories and songs, as well as a range of items like underwater and so forth. Um, the most recent one is about diversity of expression and appears to be aimed actually at personal expression. Uh, but it is all about also the protection of uh, culture production industries. Um, overall, the whole the, the direction seems to imply a, a call for a kind of property rights of some sort. I'm not really sure exactly what that would mean, uh, but certainly control over the use and movement of goods that would fall um, under any of these categories. There are special provisions made for religion uh, under these conventions uh, under the concept of an idea of spirit of place. Now, um, I kept kicking around to, uh, to just kind of have a look at what the overall rhetoric and reasoning was behind some of these conventions. And um, one of the things that came up repeatedly was is that these were the result of a nation-level response to um, felt pressure uh, to sign liberal trade agreements and the um, consequent anxiety over the need to protect cultural heritage from being treated only as commodities. 
Now, I have to say that this is something that puts up a flag for somebody who teaches something like culture and global markets because it's, it's fairly well recognized at this point that trying to draw a sharp line between culture and commodities uh, is a very, very problematic thing. And if I can just sort of illustrate to you, this 10-pound note, for example, only has power of purchase because of the cultural heritage behind it. Otherwise, it is nothing more than a piece of paper. Similarly, anything I might go out of this room and buy with it from a bus ride to a milkshake is also of value because of the culture in which it sits. And from there outward, these ambiguities only get worse and worse. Um, the treatment, as I, as I mentioned in the previous slide, of what is counts as cultural heritage and what comes under this rubric as being vastly expanded in a kind of a gentle unweaving across many different categories. But the assumption that goes across all of these in the sites that I looked at was, first of all, that cultural heritage was something that was universally and uniformly valued, uh, whose ownership was agreed upon, implicitly agreed upon, uh, on the ground, this is to say, and that it was unambiguously and always positive. Uh, the whole mission is placed under an umbrella of human rights that tends to imply a lack of national commercial interest, in other words, by diverting attention to the human rights issues. And what I want to do now is walk you through just a couple of examples that are designed to problematize these assumptions because I think that it will start to introduce some of the sticky questions that research and teaching might engage with, and in particular the role of business school. Probably the most iconic illustration uh, for most of us of the global uh, marketplace intruding on a sacred site is the opening of Starbucks uh, in the early 2000s uh, in the Forbidden City in Beijing. Um, and uh, actually, it turns out that that did a very brisk business for about seven years uh, before Starbucks finally decided just to shut it down. Uh, most people don't realize, however, that before they shut it down, they were offered the opportunity to continue the business, but it simply could not be under the Starbucks brand name, but had to be uh, a brand name of the Chinese's choosing. So that in the end, in fact, it wasn't really about uh, defiling a sacred site with commerce, but it was more about the ownership of that commerce or the cultural heritage of that commerce, which I still think actually is a reasonable position for them to take given the status of this site. However, when I kicked around a little bit more, I, found, I came across on the UN Global Compact site this uh, registration of the World Brand Cultural Heritage Committee. Committee. It's a foundation, uh, an NGO, a UN agency, that is registered with a site in China. And as I clicked through to see what it was about, in fact, what I found was that this was a form of branding or licensing that the Chinese government is offering uh, any purveyor of an object that has been for sale for at least five years perhaps not all of our idea of what the time span of cultural heritage ought to be. Um, and in addition, it seemed to be mostly commercially motivated, offering protection for the purveyors of these goods against foreign um, uh, incursions. Okay, again, perhaps a perfectly reasonable thing for the Chinese to be wanting to do, but not necessarily what we're thinking about sitting in this room about cultural heritage. Now, it so happens that during the same period, Starbucks um, uh, faced another uh, 
similar kind of a challenge, and this was in Saudi Arabia. This uh, was a situation where three American fast food chains, um, Starbucks, uh, Pizza Hut, and McDonald's, uh, opened uh, their first stores in Saudi Arabia and uh, deferred to local tradition by having sex-segregated serving spaces, uh, and in, in addition to being segregated where there were cushy chairs for the men and none at all for the women. Um, and which they came under some fairly serious criticism about uh, this, I don't know if you can see this cartoon, but this apartheid is what this says, and it's McDonald's, Saudi Arabia, and the women this way and the men that way. Um, and um, in addition to having provided for this segregated space, they also, under pressure from the Saudi government, changed their logo, which is something that I must tell you, they do not do, and multinational corporations mostly absolutely will not do it. Uh, but because any image of a woman in Saudi Arabia is bordering on or classified as pornography, they were convinced, a questionable kind of a thing in itself, I must say, uh, they were convinced to take the mermaid entirely out of the logo, and that's why all you have is a crown floating on what appears to be a sea of coffee here. Mm -hmm. Now, rather than getting lots of kudos for having been culturally sensitive, instead they've been raked over the internet, all right, for having put principles um, behind selling coffee. In other words, having gone ahead with the commoditization rather than showing proper respect for ethics, while you could still argue that they're actually showing cultural sensitivity on the ground. This is a website, um, and this is an article by a human rights activist um, from the Middle East. Um, and in fact, much of the criticism of Starbucks on this has, has been situated in the Middle East. So much so, in fact, that it's very common uh, to see this um, uh, suggested alternative uh, on those sites for the logo. One of the projects that I've been working on for uh, quite a few years at this point is to determine the effect of the Avon cosmetic system uh, on uh, poor women who go to work for them, whether or not it can uh, rescue them from poverty. Um, and it is a problematic kind of a, a project because of um, the cultural sensitivity to beauty standards, that even if we can show this as an effective way to alleviate poverty, people are very, very concerned about the cosmetics practices and the implicit racism uh, in a global set of beauty practices. Uh, interestingly enough, um, Avon themselves were very concerned about this very thing. Um, and so what they engaged in when they first went into um, South Africa was what would have been uh, recognized at the time as sort of cultural best practice. And that is that they tried to position all their communications of, uh, uh, messaging uh, around local beauty standards. So the first thing they did was is that they ran a series of national beauty contests. And for each one, they would pick four winners one from each of the races that are legally recognized in South Africa. Now the problem with this is, of course, is that these races were legislated by the apartheid regime, all right? They're still in place, they're still part of counting the census and everything else. Nevertheless, our respondents really felt that this was a heritage that was best destroyed and forgotten, not one that they particularly appreciated seeing maintained. Okay, another thing that comes up here, though, is this the idea that there are global cultural practices and the question of who owns those. So, for example, uh, most recent research has uh, suggested that the kinds of uh, cosmetic practices that Avon sells the goods for is actually a global practice that emerged in multiple places around the world at one time 
including South Africa, only about 10 years behind the rest of the places it appeared, and not because of connection with um, white American commerce, but because of connections with the black, South, uh, black African American community in the Midwestern United States. So very often what we find is that when we dig into the history of some practices, they aren't necessarily friendly to the ideological positions we might normally want to take. Now the women that we worked with in South Africa really preferred selling Avon because their alternative far and away is to sell goods on the roadside. Most of which is perishable goods and therefore highly risky because if you don't have enough traffic, uh, the goods go bad before you can sell them. And so what some women do is, is that they um, pitch up along the roadside uh, outside of national heritage sites. So on this side of this particular uh, group of ladies set up is the gate to Kruger National Park and on this side is a luxury hotel. And the goods that they had for sale here, uh, similar to just about any um, major tourist site that you would see anywhere in the developing world, are lots of little mostly handmade things uh, that are a form of cultural heritage and often are replicas of some of the things that you would see inside the site, yeah? And so that's what you have here. These kinds of objects are not only sold on, uh, on the roadside outside of Kruger Park, but also inside of Kruger Park and also inside of the luxury hotel, although you will pay a great deal more for them there than you will out on the roadside if you don't mind stopping. However, inside the park there is also, uh, I found this uh, poster uh, in the snack bar, which I found really interesting because I happen to at one time have done quite a bit of research on pinups, if you can imagine, and the copyrights about, around them. And I can tell you that this is probably a copyrighted image, so it would be hard to find the artist now, probably dead. They'll probably never know this happened. But it raises the question of how far we're going to go with this cultural heritage protection issue. Now, there's some, there's some protection here because they've managed to add in an iPod, which almost certainly was not in the original, uh, probably about 1941 picture. Now, um, as I said before, um, and I'm sure all of you who have traveled in the developing world have seen this, is that it's very, very common um, near uh, what would be World Heritage sites or, or heavily traveled sites in the developing world to see poor people um, clustered around the gates trying to sell often replicas of the building or of the things within it. And very, very often these items will be of a religious nature, such as statues of gods and goddesses. And I'm often very, very um, worried about this because I can often see as a marketing person, all right, that there are too many little statuettes, too many blankets spread out for the number of tourists that are there, and that this is very, very discouraging work, especially if I think the things have been handmade. Now, it's interesting because I worried a lot more about this before somebody told me that in fact most of them are imported from China. <laughs> okay. But these kinds of religious objects you can see for sale outside of Cathedrals, for example, I took this picture in uh, Padua, yeah? Nevertheless, the people who sell these objects depend on it for a living. It's a, it's a brutal way to make a living, but it's all that they've got. And one of the things that caused me concern last week when I was in here listening to the lawyers is what would happen if governments started to take to police their rights to these images to the detriment of the people on the ground and not the multinational corporations. And that really causes me a great deal of, of concern because I think that there's a tendency to assume from the position of Oxford that, that governments are going to be benign and corporations are going to be evil. 
And a lot of times what happens in governments in the developing world is, and has had, history has borne this out in many places, is that the people who are in positions of power use the nation's resources for their own personal profit and not to benefit the people on the ground. And one of the things that we will need to take into account is that this could be something that would cause contradictions to what the intentionality is in terms of policy. So in some, I think there's a very good role for the business school in, in a project of this sort um, because the business school may be about values, but this is going to be a lot about money. And I think that there's a potential to have um, unintended consequences of uh, policy decisions made that are not made in full recognition of the fact that there are economic interests at stake and not only cultural interests. <laughs>